Greetings, dear listeners. It's just Shadi and I this week talking about Elon Musk buying Twitter and the general freakout about free speech that's going on right now. We start there and find that we agree on a lot. The conversation then turns to the importance of social media more broadly. We argue about revolutions, the Arab Spring, and the ambivalent role the internet has played in all those events. On to the show. Look, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I have like a fully formed opinion on the Elon stuff and him buying Twitter, but it's interesting. It feels like a lot of the ideas that we started wisdom of crowds around, um, a lot of the sort of jokes about the wisdom of crowds (laughs) as a title (laughs) are wrapped up in a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, and I figured we should maybe talk about it. And I'm not sure where this conversation will go, but I, I think we could probably fill an hour and change of, of, of musings on this because I have, I have disorganized thoughts on this and I, I, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it all over the place. I, there's, it's a really interesting moment in sort of social media world in America and oligarchic capture and <laughs> free speech and, and democracy and what does, you know, what is the actual voice of the people and... How do we give it expression? Should we give it we, expression? Who we are, are we? the voice of the people? <laughs> we are the voice of the people. I don't know, Shadi. I, I let's just kick it off by just kicking. I'm, what you're following this? I'm, you know, I, we're both working on other things right now, but it's been sort of impossible to not pay attention to it. I, I, do you have any any thoughts? I haven't seen you really tweeting about it much. Um, <laughs> I, I tweeted See, something kind of flippant, knowing that it would annoy you know, sort of, and it was meant to annoy specifically, um, you know, social activists and stuff like that. So I, I, I wrote something disparaging and then got lightly jumped on. And Can you remind us what you said? You replied to it at some point. Ponder it, ponder it. But I disagreed with you. That I do remember. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, here, here's the tweet. I found it. I, I do hope Elon manages to destroy anonymity on Twitter. Time to sacrifice the ability of activists and repressive regimes to communicate in exchange for stability in our own. And then the subsequent tweet was time to restore a sense of shame and the attendant weights of responsibility to online speech. <laughs> kind of proud of that. So, so yes, I mean, well put, certainly. But I definitely disagree with the first tweet just because um, fighting against authoritarian regimes in closed societies is, in my mind a more vital consideration than the quote unquote stability of American public debate or discourse or our politics more broadly. I mean, we'll survive. America will muddle through for all of its faults. I don't know if dissent, if dissidents and protesters will survive in authoritarian regimes if they don't have these social media platforms and they're not protected in some sense, including by being anonymous. That's just, that's a, maybe a side point because it, it relates to a specific set of people. I mean, at the same time, you know, so, like a very small subset of people. And I didn't, I, I, I really, I, I tried to clarify a little bit my impish trolling there because on the one hand, I, I am skeptical legitimately skeptical of this idea that, you know, uh, the only thing keeping social change 
going in repressive regimes is the freedom of social media, like and anonymity on social media. I think that's grossly overstated on the one hand. But I've the other part of the dig, because I don't I don't really care about the stability of, of our own system in a lot of ways. So, you know, I mean, it was sort of the dig against the whole post-Trump obsession with social media, which is like, we have to regulate this because if we don't, we're going to have more Trumps. And that's obviously horseshit too, right? Um, I think, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I and, and I so agree. that was, so the, that was the, the sort of torque in the tweet, you know, like I hardly, I'm hardly, you know, uh, all that committed to, to, you know, uh, write talk on the internet. And I mean, I was sort of, even, even in, in, in trolling on Twitter, I don't know, it was perhaps too clever by half. And I didn't really think about it when I, when I, when I tweeted it, but I, that was, I, I did want to just sort of, it was, it was, it was my best attempt at a shit post, uh, that, <laughs> that, that I could like, you know, just like knock out. Um, and what we need more of in life and on Twitter is shit posting clearly. And Elon will save us there. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's here's what I'd say to start off. Mm. I didn't really have a lot of interest in getting involved in this debate. And that's why I haven't really been tweeting much about it. And quite honestly, I haven't been tweeting much in general because I'm still sort of in the, in the Ukraine or post-Ukraine mode of thinking that a lot of our debates here in the US have, bec have become frivolous and silly and vaguely ridiculous. And I think there's something, there's something almost offensive about getting in these dumb Twitter debates when people are dying every day in Ukraine in, in quite large numbers. That said, we have to move, I mean, we still have to be able to debate our own American politics and the, the war in Ukraine will likely be going on for months to come. So clearly, we have to have opinions about this, especially because it does relate to some pretty critical questions about how we organize society. So if you get beyond all the all the freaking out on Twitter, where, oh, Elon Musk is going to destroy the world or whatever, you get past that and you, you do get to foundational differences about what about the democratic idea. What is democracy and to what extent should elites regulate democracy and i think the more i've been paying attention to the debate over you know musk and twitter i think that there's something pretty frightening going on and it's not from elon musk yeah it's from his opponents yeah so i i am feeling that more and more so i just read obama's big speech about tech regulation and misinformation which I think happened um, last week or something like that. And we'll include a link to that address in the show notes. It was at Stanford University. So I normally would not have read a speech like this. I mean, it's relatively banal and it doesn't say anything new or original, but it is still frightening in the sense that Obama does basically come out and say that there has to be more regulation and more limits on free speech, including on social media platforms. And even though they are private companies, he believes that they have enough of a relevance to, to public life that the government, the government can and perhaps even should step in. Fine, okay, that's step one, um, the regulatory structure. But then the question is, 
first of all, we don't really know what that looks like in practice. Who decides what that regulatory structure is? And of course, Obama's vision is that it would be it would be right thinking, and I don't mean on the right side of the spectrum, I just mean people who have the quote unquote right ideas, they would be the ones determining the boundaries of discourse. So if you say something that is climate change denial, that could fall outside of the boundaries of acceptable speech. And already some of that has been happening. And I, I just read a piece the other day about how Twitter had banned climate change propaganda ads. Um, so that, that relates to ads more specifically, but still, who decides what climate change propaganda is? I think climate change is real. I think people who deny it are completely wrong, but where do you draw the line? And, you know, it, where do you draw the line on vaccines um, and being skeptical about aspects of the vac vaccine discourse? All of these things can fall under the rubric of quote unquote misinformation and, there, and therefore they can be restricted under a regulatory framework if we follow Obama's logic. So that to me, that to me is what we really have to pay attention to. And I'll just give a specific example of what he says in his speech. Um, okay, interesting, interesting. I'm just rereading certain parts. Interesting, Barry, interesting. Uh, yeah, okay, look, so he, so he says, he says that because companies recognize the often dangerous relationship between social media, nationalism, and domestic hate groups, they do need to engage with vulnerable populations about how to put better safeguards in place to protect minority populations, ethnic populations, religious minorities, wherever they operate. Sounds very nice on, at face value. But if the priority becomes protecting religious or ethnic minorities, and I happen to be one of them, <laughs> then um, does that mean that if people say offensive things about Muslims, like that could be restricted because that's in the name of protecting minority populations? I mean, where does this end? And again, who decides what the red lines are? Another, another example, he talks about how he would, he's giving some standards about how he would evaluate regulatory proposals as it relates to social media. This is what he says. The way I'm going to evaluate any proposal touching on social media is whether it strengthens or weakens the prospects for a healthy, inclusive democracy, and whether it encourages robust debate and respect for our differences whether it, in, whether it reinforces rule of law and self-governance, and whether it helps us make collective decisions based on the best available information. Oh, and there's, and, and. <laughs> sorry, there's a lot of ands. This is such a long sentence. And whether it recognizes the rights and freedoms and dignity of all our citizens. Okay, again, sounds reasonable, but because it's, because it's liberal elites and cultural elites in this country who decide what all of those words mean. So for example, the freedoms and dignity of all of our citizens. What's dignity? Yeah, exactly. What, what does that mean? So anything that is an affront to the dignity of a, of, of a, 
of a citizen or a group. And then let's not obviously, you know, one of the big lightning rods in this debate is how people talk about um, trans rights online. So there's a, or, so it has a lot of applications and we as Americans do not agree on what the standard of dignity is or should be. Um, and it's also like an instrumentalist argument. He's saying that the proposal is good if it helps us have a healthy, inclusive democracy. He yeah. decides what a healthy, inclusive democracy right. is. Right. I was about to say, um, yeah, what's healthy and what's inclusive also. Yeah. Those are the three says, words as you were reading that I highlighted as dignity, <laughs> healthy, and inclusive. What are we talking about here? Exactly. Yeah, and he says, we make collective decisions based on the best available information. Who decides what the best available information? I mean, I could just go on, but this is where we're going. So do you, did you, um, again, not, we're not that far apart in years, uh, in, I think it had to have been elementary school, I'm guessing. I just remember, uh, you know, being taught about, uh, free speech in America. And I remember the kind of examples that would, uh, you know, be put forth elementary school, you know, children, um, and, it would, and I remember even being like, wow, that's, that's serious stuff. When they'd say stuff like, uh, we protect, you know, the rights of even the Ku Klux Klan who are, you know, to basically march and that this is one of the great strengths of America that, you know, if you believe crazy shit like that, even people like that are, you know, allowed to have a public hearing, which is basically a march through a town or something like that. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, they'd say, like, we have the ACLU and, and organizations such as that that are, in fact, you know, stand uh, ready to defend that. And, you know, our entire legal system, you know, we have lawyers who will represent groups like these because, you know, the, the sacrosanct value here is speech. And there was a there was a there was a faith behind it, um, a faith that uh, the best way to deal with this sort of stuff is to engage with it. Um not necessarily, you know, uh, spend a lot of time, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, wasting one's time uh, getting into the finer points of uh, race of, you know, white supremacy theory or whatever the hell these people, uh, fault, you know, ultimately subscribe to, unless you want to really get into that. But, you know, as a, as a public, we needn't necessarily get into these sorts of things, but we shouldn't repress it. I think that was the that was the thing I remember learning in elementary school, is that repression of these things uh, doesn't, you know, that that maybe put it this way, if I remember correctly, uh, was something like you know, change comes by giving by shining the light on any and uh, all ideas, and I guess it's kind of a an optimistic rationalist sort of idea that bad ideas would get defeated by good ideas in the sort of open. Um, fight between them, right? I, I remember that was sort of the, the the gist of letting Klansmen march through towns if they wanted to, and it's it's striking how we've moved beyond that in this online era, and really right after Trump, right? And it's when um, the sort of awesome power of social media to to warp people uh, became just sort of an accepted part of how we think about things. That obviously, uh, you know, stuff you read on the internet 
uh, is going to uh, basically tempt you to uh, vote incorrectly or, you know, vote for someone like Trump, who you just would not have ever deigned to vote for otherwise, right? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, do, do, you, do you remember learning something like that when you were coming up? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, that was the whole idea behind the ACLU and other yeah. civil rights organizations. They were, in a sense, free speech absolutists, which makes this all ironic. And here I have a Reuters headline from the other day. It says, human rights groups, including the ACLU, raised concerns about hate speech on Twitter and the power that Elon Musk would have after his acquisition. And they referred to Elon Musk as a self-described free speech absolutist. Right. So that is what is concerning them there. So here is a free speech absolutist taking over a social media company. And that to them is what's frightening. So it's almost a reversal of the ACLU's traditional position. And um, I mean, after all, what could be worse than a free speech absolutist. I mean, that's that's the that's where the discourse is right now. But I think that there's there's a, there's an element of scapegoating here because instead of in instead of political and cultural elites who are primarily liberals in northeastern cities and on the west coast, instead of looking inward and reassessing assumptions about the way they looked at the world and what they got wrong, they can say that false information is the primary problem. And if only people could be exposed to the truth that we have and only we have, then they would vote correctly. Then they wouldn't vote for someone like Donald Trump. It's a way of basically blaming people, blaming Americans for the opinions that they have and to suggest that they have no legitimate right to believe something that is contrary to a certain consensus. So it is really a way to exert, um, there's almost an authoritarian instinct. Obviously this is not authoritarianism. We are a democracy and we shouldn't make, I think analogies that don't hold up. This We're not gonna become some kind of, um, you know, tech dictatorship, God willing. But, you know, there is an authoritarian instinct which is driving a growing number of people on the left side of the spectrum. And they don't even realize that that's what they're doing and saying because they believe they are right. And because they are right, they have found the truth. And therefore it's their job to spread the truth and to make sure that as many Americans as possible are exposed to it. To be fair, it's not it's not even the left, right? Uh, I mean, we're singling out Obama, but there's also the 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 entire sort of establishment Republican side of of of, of things, and you know, uh, people that really felt that that Trump um, was unnatural, that uh, Trump took over their party. You know, I mean, there's that that element seems like what's happening here. So I think it's it's fair to say that this is really the center that's that's fighting this fight. It's a center that has lost, you know, through, uh, uh, you know, the test of democracy, at least in 2016, lost its legitimacy. Um, and it fought back by asserting that its legitimacy is grounded in the truth. And the only way it could lose legitimacy is if the truth was occluded from the people. 
I think that's sort of the impulse behind this, right? Again, this is why I was saying at the beginning, I, I, I feel like this is relevant to the wisdom of crowds, because at least from my perspective, the impish title of the, this podcast and this whole venture that we're, <laughs> we're, we're undergoing here is that, yeah, here's the wisdom of the crowds. You got your Donald Trump. Take that. There's, there's wisdom for you. You know, the crowds have decided. And, but no, it was Russian disinformation. It was, uh, you know, and if it's not Russian, then it's social media companies themselves by, uh, you know, uh, 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 whatchamacallit, um, highlighting and, uh, uh, you know, pushing forward uh, the kinds of stuff that is more popular rather than more truthful, that this leads to a kind of distortion within the body politic. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I haven't, I haven't done much thinking on it since I wrote an article, I think it was in 2017 at the American interest talking about anonymity, which also I was sort of, um, pivoting off in the, in that tweet, but we can, we can sort of leave an anonymity aside because it is a sort of separate set of issues. Um, but it, it was it was in in reading this stuff this week this whole fight over over Elon Musk um, and then our friend um, my former colleague Jason Willick who's been on the podcast before uh, he's got a piece coming out this week in the Washington Post and he was you know sharing a a draft with me sort of getting feedback and uh, you and I talked about it as well Shadi he 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 um, he he linked to. Uh, an article I was, I think, let me see if I can find it. I think it was in Harper's last year. I, I don't know if you had a chance to to look at that one. Um, it was uh, Joseph Bernstein in Harper's. Right, right. Uh, um, the article is called, and we'll also link it down, so called Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. And I, he nails something in there that that to me has seemed really right in all of this, which is, you know, I think one shouldn't, be completely cavalier about um, about you know that there have been impacts from social media on our politics, and I think he's he's deft enough. And Jason, in his piece that should come out later this week, is also I think deft in in addressing some of this. Um, but but you know it's the the point that that Bernstein makes in his piece is that our politics emerges out of something a lot bigger than our media ecosystem. Um, he, he cites something called pre-propaganda, you know, which is this idea that I think a lot of these disinfo people have come up with that, you know, things end up going more viral, uh, on social media if it has like the, the, the push of certain prominent either celebrities or politicians or whatever. Um, and, and he makes a really good case that it's, you know, something like Trump, um, is, is the product of a matrix of sort of American society, which has always seemed right to me, you know, like Trump is us. I've, I, I like saying that. I know you sometimes push back, like he's not, it's not, he's not, you know, he's not representative of all of America. We, we dislike Trump. Yeah, sure. Obviously. But Trump is also authentically American in so many ways, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a certain kind of, uh, you know, Jacksonian impulse on foreign policy, a sense of, grievance, uh, you know, sort of America alone, we're, we're the best and we're getting taken advantage of. Um, it's an anti-elitism, which is very American, I think, as well, a kind of paranoid style to American politics, you know. Um, and, and, and yeah, that, that plays into the kind of media system that we have that existed well before social media, you know. I mean, you had this kind of stuff. There was talk radio and the panics behind that before. Um, and so it's, 
it's just another one of these these things where you know the the thing that I find most um, troubling and repugnant about all this like misinfo disinfo stuff is that it's yeah it's just not reflective. The people who propound it just don't really think very hard about any of this. Um, and you know, as you were saying, uh, never mind what what an inclusive democracy is, but what is a healthy democracy? Uh, a healthy democracy is one where wrong think doesn't happen apparently. Um, you know, by by Obama's lights to a certain extent. Um, so I don't know yeah. where I'm going with that, but it's it's it, it is that though, right? It's like that 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 there's a cart and horse thing that I think is wrong about this. This idea that that you know, uh, if only people, and it, it gets to the whole question of education, right? Which also th that is a, a more left wing sort of thing. That if you know, um, if if voters were only educated, uh, um, they could be freed from a certain kind of false consciousness. That that is the way for for, uh, for enlightenment and emancipation is education, and it's it's tied to that 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 education and engagement with the facts uh, leads to a quote unquote healthy democracy. And if you don't have that, you have. Uh, an unsanitary public space, which leads to an unhealthy democracy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, so the issue also with the word disinformation is that it obscures what you should do if you confront a bad idea or a false idea, which is understand why the person believes it and to have some kind of genuine intellectual curiosity about what formed their worldview. If we just dismiss something immediately as false or misinformation, then we lose that opportunity to have a deeper engagement. And so we're basically obscuring the origins of our crisis, the so-called root causes. And it allows us to basically avoid any kind of deeper thinking or, or assessment. Um, that I think is really what's at the core of it. And uh, so this is also pretty crazy, which I just found out about today. And I'm surprised this wasn't a bigger deal when it came out. But in February, uh, our Department of the US Department of Homeland Security released a document titled um, National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin. Hmm. The summary, which we can include as a link, it's called Summary of Terrorism Threat to the U.S. Homeland. So they're using the, it's terror, they're talking ostensibly about terrorism here. And then the first paragraph is this. The U.S. remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and malinformation. So that's referring to misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and they came up with an acronym for that, MDM. Mm. So in the first paragraph of a summary of a quote-unquote terrorism threat, our government is highlighting misleading narratives as part of a terrorist threat. Yeah. I can't even believe this. Yeah, yeah. So, and and, okay, that's one point. On the point of education, and I'm sure Demir, you'll have you'll have thoughts about this, and I think Jason touches on it in his upcoming piece, which is 
smart people or people who have the most knowledge and access to facts tend to be the most ideologically intense, the most ideologically committed, and the ones who are most resistant to reassessing their own opinions. So this idea that you basically want people with master's and PhD degrees to like run the world might be good in some ways in certain areas, but in other ways, it would basically lead to an entire group of people who don't like changing their opinion and who become very, and who sometimes become very aggressive when faced with countervailing information. And th there's, there's actually a growing academic literature about this, a number of natural experiments and surveys that get at this, this, fundamental, this fundamental fact. It's also a theme in the excellent book, Democracy for Realists, yeah. which I think dismantles with this idea that if only you give people good education, they make good decisions. Um, that's just not the way the world works. And I've often said here, here on the pod, the people who believe in the craziest, or I should say the craziest and the most dangerous things in other parts of the world that I've lived in tend to be the best educated and including people who are educated in the West. Again, it might seem counterintuitive, but, um, and there's reasons for that. I mean, I think the most basic reason is that if you're well-educated, you have a commitment to the idea that you are right and others are wrong. And there's a kind of intellectual superiority that results. That's certainly part of it. Um, and we all fall victim to this, especially in areas that you know we, we focus on or that we think we're quote unquote experts in. It does take a little bit more to listen to what other people have to say. So this is a universal problem. Um, but because the U.S. has a lot of um, highly self-regarding gatekeepers, they, yeah, so this is, yeah, these are not the people we necessarily want to, to run our social media companies. And maybe it's better to have a weirdo or a crazy or a vaguely crazy person like Elon Musk who has a different approach. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh whether Elon's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, I I, ha I happily bracket that and and you know get the popcorn bucket uh, to watch rather than than claim one way or the other how this is going to work out because honestly I, I have no idea how it's going to work out, but you know I I, I was struck by that point too and I'd forgotten about uh, democracy for realists that that that, that makes that case in, in one way but you know the the, the implication. Uh, and what Jason's getting at there is that 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 low information voters are what what allows a democracy to function, which I love. I love that as an idea, right? That 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 in fact, getting information is is you know if if perhaps we had perfectly informed voters, hundred percent perfectly informed voters, uh, or never mind, not perfectly informed. That's that's sort of a, a straw man. Uh, highly engaged uh, and, you know, voters that really paid attention a lot more, that democracy would cease to function. Um, and, you know, I, that gets at, again, sort of that like wisdom of crowds thing. Like, what is this wisdom? And I, I don't know, you, you, you get these sorts of theories that, you know, low information voters, uh, only the most important stuff like filters to, through to them and, and, you know, that kind of like uh, horse sense of the average uh, voter, the average uh, person, um, 
gets us to the best kinds of outcomes. There's like the, the even more cynical one, which is that, you know, uh, the low information voter uh, just needs to know if he's better off or worse off and votes based on that. Um, and there, therefore, you get a cycling of leadership based on that. And you don't need more than that to do it. I don't know. Where do you come down on that as a democracy theorist and, and on this whole sort of question of, of uh, what is, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, the importance of individual dignity and, and these sorts of things and why democracy is good and right. Um, but I mean, how, how, how when, when you were forced to get instrumentalist about it, uh, do, you, do you think about these sorts of issues at all? About, because there is, I think, among the Obama centrists, this idea that democracy is uh, good because it is, it leads to progress. If that makes well, sense. Gonna, yeah, and of course, I'm completely against that idea. I think yeah. it's it's abs patently absurd. And I think there's almost something anti-democratic about that premise, because if democracy doesn't end up leading to progress, right. then you can discard with democracy if yeah. progress is the ultimate goal. Yeah. It basically transforms democracy into a means and a means that you use for things that are not intrinsically related to democracy. Why should democracy necessarily lead to progress. And again, whose definition of progress? The definition of progress seems to change every day and every year. I mean, 10 years ago, Obama opposed gay marriage. That would be seen today as bigoted and, and extreme. Today, he thinks that's something that everyone should support. And that might be a good evolution for him to have, but it does underscore that these are always changing standards, even within the same human being and I shouldn't say 10 years, it was, sorry, a 12 year, uh, over 12 years he made that shift or 13. So, um, so I think that's why I feel some of these issues rather strongly because they go against what is increasingly my understanding of the democratic idea. And it's on a really fundamental level. And it makes me wonder if a lot of these people believe in democracy irrespective of its outcomes. And to me, that's always been something to prioritize in part because of my experiences in the Middle East when, you know, where democratic outcomes usually aren't that good in quotation marks and are often bad. Um, bad election results are a reality. They're going to happen pretty regularly. They might happen more in the future. We'll have to wait and see. But they've already happened quite a bit in the last six or seven years. And I think instead of in, instead of trying to prevent those things from happening by educating people and exposing them to the truth somehow and changing them, that we have to, we have to ask why are there so many people who are looking for alternative sources of in, information? Why are there so many people in most of the major democracies in the world who aren't happy with the people who have been governing for the last several decades. I mean, that that is the that is the fundamental question. So that's where I come out on it. And I, I guess that helps me understand why I'm like the more I'm talking about this now, the more I'm bothered by it. Yeah. And um yeah, and I'm happy that I'm bothered by it because I probably should be. <laughs> well, so so I, I feel like, you know, uh going like 35 minutes or so at this point. And I, we, we're in very broad agreement on a lot of this stuff. So I don't know, maybe maybe then let's let's talk a little bit more about um, 
this question of like the public sphere. Um, and I guess let's just unpack my tweet a little bit more about anonymity and about activism and, and social change, because, you know, I, I, I know where you're coming from in your criticism of what I said, but I guess, I guess the thing about the Elon thing, which is also bizarre to me, and I think Freddie DeBoer, did you read his essay that just came out yesterday no, or the day before? Um, he, he, it's not specifically, he, it's, you know, it's, it's classic Freddie. It's a, it's somewhat aggrieved and, 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 uh, um, but smart as usual and, and, uh, mercifully a lot shorter than a lot of his stuff. I think it's, it's the right length. I feel like he, he overwrites sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he makes the case that, that, that all the kerfuffle about Elon Musk and Twitter has to do with the fact that, um, the people most exercised over this are the kind of people that don't like to hear, uh, dissenting opinions. And those are the kinds of people that, uh, populate Twitter. So they're just sort of cleaning out Twitter, of things that they find offensive and they're just creating a bubble around it. But you know, it what what struck me about it, I think Elon was tweeting this morning about um platforms more downloaded on on Apple than Twitter and I was pointing out that Trump's new social platform is higher up in the rankings than Twitter as is TikTok. What? Yeah, really? I mean, I think it's just getting a boost right now, whatever. It's just like a daily What is snapshot. the platform even called? Truth Social or something? Yeah, yeah, Truth Social. It's like trending higher than Twitter, which that is, is crazy. But but the the thing that struck me there, you know, I, and I was reading Ross Douthat's most recent column too, and he mentioned instead of talking about Twitter, he talked about Facebook, which is another platform that that you know gets a lot of attention. Um, what's striking to me about something like Twitter versus Facebook is that I abandoned Facebook about two and a half years ago, and I spend less than like a fraction of a second every month, even thinking that that company exists anymore. It's completely out of my life. I, I still have an account, I think. I, I haven't checked it in months. I don't even, I've you know turned off all notifications on it. It exists there, so I guess I can be found if necessary. If someone wants to find it, but even if they found me, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, I might be getting piling up messages in there because I, I never <laughs> check. Um, uh, and and yet, yet Facebook is still Big. I mean, they're they're losing money this year and for all sorts of reasons. But there's still it's it's still a big thing, and it has no effect on my life. And <sighs> Twitter is important among our set, and our set involves you know policy people, think tankers, intellectuals, and journalists and politi politicians, right? Um, and so then of course there's like the sort of celebrity culture around it and sports and other stuff, um, but. I, 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 I wonder to myself the extent to which we're hyperventilating over, and this goes back to that, that question of, you know, if the, if, the, the, if the political outcomes are, you know, basically the result of the society we have, I, I tend to think that all of the social media stuff is just something that, that sits on top of all of this stuff and is, is not actually all that important. You know what I mean? In the sense that that if Twitter were to become a free-for-all, um, I'm not sure Musk can pull this off, but let's say it was, he was able to pull something like that off. Would it, would it matter that much? Probably um, not. And, and, but then that gets to the other question, which was my tweet about anonymity and, and social activists. You know, um, The fact is that the internet is designed and structured in such a way that 
you know, you'd have to build something really pervasive to remove anonymity. It is, by its very nature, an anonymous system. So if something like Twitter was to de-anonymize, bah, who cares? I, this is a thing that's like, I feel like it's a weird little bubble that even social activists exist in. And even your point, you're saying, you know, well, how would they, how would they survive in an authoritarian system if they didn't have anonymity on Twitter, you implied. I don't know if you meant specifically on Twitter. But again, the question to you is, is the following, right? Is, is I know the Arab Spring was organized on social media. And that was a, uh, you know, a, a transformational and important moment for you um, intellectually, emotionally. You know, I, I think it shaped you in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, it's, 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 do you have some sort of special attachment to the freedom of the Internet as a result? I don't. I think the Internet is just this thing that's kind of annoying, kind of useful in certain things, kind of accentuates some things. It changes things, certainly. But I don't think it's that fundamental. Am I am I am I That's, crazy on this? That might be the best summation of what the internet is that I've heard. Sort of annoying and sort of useful. <laughs> that pretty much covers it. So, yeah, I, look, I'm not I'm not like super invested in in these things in in you know whatever social media as a mechanism for change, but it was you know in the Arab Spring it was really important for activists on the ground to have to have facebook and twitter accounts and being some of them had to be anonymous or wanted to be anonymous and they wouldn't have been able to organize otherwise or they wouldn't have felt comfortable saying something on twitter about an upcoming protest or i don't know um even messaging you know whatever it might be because back in the day, Twitter was much more social in the sense that it was a way that people actually made personal connections in particular cities and towns. And there used to be something called tweet ups. And I remember I went to a couple of them when I was living in Doha. So in that golden age, Twitter was a little bit more micro oriented and there was that feeling of community. And not everyone would necessarily be part of that community if it was de-anonymized. I mean, that's really um, the thrust of my point. And again, maybe that doesn't matter as much now because, well, first of all, like, I guess, um, well, there aren't really protests going on. Well, uh, there there isn't like a movement for change currently <laughs> that is promising in most Arab countries. So people aren't paying attention to the role of social media as much. But um, certainly for getting information that is different than what the government tells you, Twitter continues to be quite important for that if you're able to access it in various countries. And again, you may not want to be openly liking and following people and, and, and participating if your name is there. Yeah. I mean, what, what, so tell me what, what you take issue with there. I don't take issue with any of it. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I guess the, the maybe the the conversation I've meant to have with you at several points is well. So, so whatever happened to what was the Egyptian activist? I think he worked for Google. Was it while? Yeah, while Ghanim. Yeah. yeah, he worked for Google. Is it? Is where is he? What happened to him? Do you know? So it's a bit of a long story. Um, without being too mean, I'll just say that it seems like he kind of lost his shit. And he started like, he, he started posting really weird, bizarre videos. And I know that 
many of his friends and and colleagues were concerned about what was going on with him. But basically, he also ended up being kind of pro dictatorship, and um, and he's kind of shifted to supporting, you know, the repression of the Egyptian regime. There's some reasons about why that might have happened, but um, I think like a lot of former Egyptian activists during the Arab Spring, it was emotionally devastating to go through everything they went through. So in that sense, I don't want to attack him or or demean him, but a lot of people really did, um, you know, uh, suffered from, you know, various, various personal issues, emotional issues, mental illness. I mean, that's, you know, depression is a big thing for that group of people who were who were protesting and dreaming and then what happened happened so he sort of he sort of like disappeared from the activist scene and um and it's just kind of like he just posts these really weird videos on a regular basis on twitter or maybe he stopped recently like him singing in the car and like doing weird doing weird things and maybe that's fine, but anyway, he's not really involved anymore in politics. Who among us doesn't do weird things on the internet? <laughs> no, but no, no. But yeah, the reason I bring it up is this, right? Is is that? Um, and it, this is what I don't know. So you know, help me out here. Um, he he was not fond of the Muslim Brotherhood taking over, right? The revolution that he started. He had a different idea of what the revolution would be. Is that is that correct yeah, or fair? Yeah, it's worth noting that most of the um, the revolutionaries who were feted by the Western media um, ended up supporting the coup. Right. Uh, just two and a half years later. And some of them even supported the subsequent massacre against Brotherhood supporters right. that killed about a thousand people in one day. And for longtime listeners, you you will have heard me talk about that particular incident. But yes, there is also this deeper, that a lot of the people who are ostensibly pro-democracy activists did turn against it. Well, so that to me is the the, the real thing about, you know, again, this, this activism, uh, social media-fueled activism, which again, I... <sighs> fine you know like i i it's you know the tools are there he went and did it and he was a dreamer and then his dreams ran into a reality that the egypt of his dreams didn't exist that the only and this you know gets to the other question right which is uh the 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 how social change happens and then who's able to actually be a protagonist in social change so this is my argument against like social media mattering that much now mattering of course people like uh like him right um were catalysts for what happened in Egypt in a big way. But a after they became catalysts, they they had none of the tools or, or any of the ability to do anything with it. Um, so again, that's why I question the, the importance of social media for any of this. Whereas, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is, is a, a proper, you know, political revolutionary uh, organization for a very long time, has... Uh, has been organizing for generations and was just much more ready to seize that moment. And again, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I guess so when you ask me like, what's my problem with any of what you said, my problem is, is that, that like, I, I just, I don't, I really don't see, you know, in that sense, I'm, I'm less agitated at the prospect of social media changing one way or the other. I, I just don't see it as that 
that I mean, it's important in the sense that it again, like, accentuates and 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 amplifies and 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 makes maybe the the sort of uh, the shifts in our politics exaggerated and faster and bigger, maybe a little more chaotic. Um, and so, for as a result of that, I mean, I guess I guess you know the fight is worth over how this goes is important. But I I I um. I'm alienated by the the this assumption. This is why I tweeted that thing. It was just like, well, we have to protect social activists because social activists because change. Meh. I don't know. You know, uh, because I mean, you're sympathetic to uh, to uh, that. You know, a democratic Egypt would elect uh, you know Muslim Brotherhood, but one of the architects of the actual revolution is not. So I don't know. I, these things are to me are, are just completely morally neutral in that sense. I, I guess I'm not that. I don't care that much about about that. If that <laughs> well, makes look, sense. I, I suppose the question is: Does anything matter all that much in the end? I mean, <laughs> so that's is this what where we we're come. at towards <laughs> minute forty nine? <laughs> I mean, so I think that what you're also saying, if I understand correctly is that we get the societies we deserve. Correct. And that we are products of our society, but also society is a product of who we are, individuals combined as a collective. And anything else is just a tool or a mechanism or or a reflection of what is real. Hmm. And I, I suppose that's what you're getting at. Yeah, um, that's about I, I'd right. be curious, though, what you would say about Bruno Machais's argument that there's something parallel to normal politics called dream politic, which we've talked about before on the podcast, including with him, that if we take the idea of this parallel world of dream politic, which basically means that people believe and say crazy things, but they don't actually behave accordingly. So there's a gap between their attitudes and their actual actions. And you might say, well, if they're just attitudes and they're not reflected in actual behavior in the real perceptible world, then is it real? So that's the idea behind dream politic. And it's a question of whether dream politic can seep into the real world, or is there a point where you have all this seemingly ridiculous bullshit that seems almost quite literally in a different world, but then it somehow becomes real. And we have seen examples of that. Um, they haven't happened all that much in the US in the sense that, you know, if 74 million Trump supporters really believed that the election was stolen from Trump and that American democracy ended in 2020, then we would have been having mass riots, widespread civil unrest, protests on a regular basis, a domestic insurgency, um, civil conflict with the risk of it becoming something worse, violence, political violence and assassinations on a regular basis. So that's where the, that is a very good illustration of the gap. You have the dream politic world where these, these tens of millions of Americans think that democracy ended or say they think democracy ended in 2020. But in the real world, the vast majority of them are going about their lives and living like normal people, normies, basically. But that see, that goes back to that, that thing we were discussing earlier about low information voters. 
Maybe they're the maybe, best, aren't they? No, but imagine imagine that they actually do believe, like fully believe that democracy has ended more or less, or in fact that you know their democratic will has been stymied, and that you know they they believe that the patriots on January sixth were fighting for all that is right. But in fact, you know, the United States is a huge country. It's loosely governed. Lots of ungoverned spaces in between, uh, outside of the cities, you know. And people are like, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll vote again. And like, shit's really fucked up and it's broken. And, eh, and you know, we'll 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 deal with the next election. I guess that means democracy is still fine. You know, to the to your other point about you know dream politic and this, I, what you described about mass civil unrest and the rest of that, that's like high information voters would get into that. Low information <laughs> voters wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Until when the cops come, I'll shoot them because like, they're illegitimate to me. But like, it doesn't matter until then. No, it's it's a really good point. Low information people are not the ones who organize protests or domestic insurgencies. Right. The people who do shit are high information people who have strong opinions because they've read they've read whatever they've been reading. But um, you, you, like, made a, you made a point about this dream politics. I, I don't want to lose it. And I don't have a notepad, so I didn't write it down. You know, the, the <laughs> thing that that that, um, um, that you said there about, you know, uh, my stance about whatever reality, and then you, you juxtapose dream politic against this. And, you know, we're products of society and we shape society, but it's it's sort of this like static thing. I, I, I don't, I don't um, uh, you know, deny that change, you know, things happen in the world. And events have consequences, and 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 this sort of you know stasis point uh, can shift one way or the other. I think what's interesting, uh, again, I'm largely ignorant of, apart from just very sort of top level stuff of what happened in Egypt, but the the you know the 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 activists um, failed in their vision because they didn't know how to do politics. Uh, exactly, or rather, not just politics. They didn't know even they didn't have a theory of power or how to do things, how to actually do things. Maybe this is like the dream politic thing. And I remember when we had Bruno on uh, talking about his his, his book, uh, it was just after January 6th that happened. And, you know, he was saying how, how much that was all pantomime in a lot of ways. And, you know, to, to put it in, in my terms, I would say January 6th was a potential for something to happen if those, you know, those yahoos uh, had actually come in armed and had like hung Pence and like killed a couple of senators and actually done a coup, um, well, then something would have happened. <laughs> they would have been, you know, and if somehow, you know, with all this sort of ham-fistedness, we didn't send uh, troops and guards to shoot down the protesters in front of the Capitol, as Tom Cotton and I were calling for at the time, you know, uh, a forbearance of the authorities and the ability of a small group of armed, uh, determined people to do violence to change things? Yeah, that's something happening. And it's political violence. It's the ability to sort of violence. Political violence is just sort of on the spectrum of politics, ultimately, at the sort of the far end of the spectrum. But I think that's how I think about it, right? Is that 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 I, I don't really, this is why I, I always do sort of poo-poo the role of ideas as sort of motivators. Because, yeah, it, it, ideas belong in this dream politics stuff. And as with the sort of idealist, you know, Arab Spring activists on Twitter riling up mobs, but then not knowing what the hell they're doing. They don't have, they don't do. They just gesture and, you know. Demir, yeah. I was with you until your last couple sentences. Yeah, go on, go on. And as longtime listeners will know, I believe ideas matter. I think Demir believes that too, but not to the same degree. Let's be charitable. Yeah, let's. Um, but, 
But when it comes to political violence, let's say on on January 6th or any other incident that's comparable, or and we're talking here about the potential of what might have been, what you need for real violence in politics are intellectuals. And that's why when we talk about the ideologue behind a certain movement, that ideologue almost by definition is an intellectual or at least an aspiring intellectual who comes up with half-baked ideas, but ideas that have real currency in the sense that they are distinctive approaches to the world. Um, or motivating, they, right? Like they they're, motivate. They're they motivators. motivate and they mobilize. I don't, yeah. I don't even have to say distinctive. I, mean, I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, it's, uh, I read a, a, a really interesting uh, essay that I think Brad DeLong uh pulled out it was an H.L. Mencken essay about Hitler, like, and he's writing in like, I think 1931 or something. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes too. It's really good, you know, him observing what's happening. It just makes, in passing there, he just craps on Hitler's whole slot of ideas, but he has a passage in there about like, clearly he's talked to a lot of people that have influenced him and it's all filtered down into this like mob level garbage that he just says, but it motivates. It's motivating and he's a very talented speaker, you know? So anyway, yeah. but that's, again, sort of downgrading ideas. Exactly. So to be clear, you, yeah. you don't need to actually be like brilliant to be an ideologue or, um, but even brilliant intellectuals have ended up supporting and encouraging movements of violence, maybe not always in their lifetimes, but certainly inspiring those movements subsequently. So, I mean, this is where I think it's inescapable to see the power of ideas. I mean, if Karl Marx was had never lived, there probably would have been other crazy movements, but they would have probably been somewhat different than what we ended up seeing in the Soviet Union. Um, or, um, you know, um, any number of examples. There's actually um, two excellent books by Mark Lilla, which I think we've mentioned before, yeah, yeah. that give little fascinating intellectual biographies of people, of brilliant people who ended up supporting evil things. So the two books are The Reckless Mind and The Shipwrecked Mind. So, and, you know, obviously someone like Carl Schmitt is an obvious example, or Heidegger, both uh, members of the Nazi party, both undoubtedly brilliant. And those ideas... Um, they certainly lived then, and in interesting ways, Carl Schmitt's ideas are alive today in any number of different forms. And I have to say, there's almost no one who I end up, who I end up not reading him, but reading his name mentioned in other things that I'm reading. Carl Schmitt always comes up, and it's it's really a fascinating development of the last few years. But this is just all to say that. People are being motivated by the things by things that they read and ideas that they end up subscribing to. So I, I'm just curious what you would say to that because even if we're talking about the new right, if if we're if we're thinking of the new the so-called new right in America as becoming a force in the future, it's becoming a force in large part because of the intellectuals who have, you know, offered an alternative. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm fine with that. I guess, I guess it's just that when, when the rubber meets the road, I think it, it comes down to. I guess I'm more interested in 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 uh, the ability to actually do things than the ability to incite. And maybe this gets us to the sort of thinking about you know social media. 
Because again, you know, I in 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 the the Twitter fight, uh, there's this uh, guy also you know wrote for the American Interest uh, a couple of times, Martin Scold, who I, I I like his stuff on Twitter. He's really smart. Uh, knows his military stuff very well. Um, speaks very uh, has very smart things to say about Asia and the challenge of China and sort of the and and he's 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 a he's very well versed in in sort of American history and it's always always like paying attention to him. He went after me on the anonymity thing and you know the importance of anonymity on um, uh, in the American context. And to be fair, I, I I took account of a lot of those objections when I wrote that piece in 2017 in the American Interest about anonymity on social media. Um, I, I, I guess to me, it still comes down to uh, how, how critical is social media, you know, again, to this idea of activism and social change abroad, which you were defending. I, my, my argument to you would be, and this is why I was, I was um, focusing on this uh, wild Gonim guy in, in Egypt, um, his, dis, uh, his disappointments with what he thought he was doing and was unable to achieve, um, the fact that that a real political party and revolutionary movement managed to take power for a certain amount of time before it was brutally put down. Um, that, that, that in a sense, one could basically write out the whole sort of social activism thing. Maybe it wouldn't have happened exactly as it happened, um, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, at, at some point, presumably, uh, the Brotherhood would have had their chance in Egypt and presumably at some point in the future, they'll have their chance again. Um, you know, but that's and, a big difference, though, for something to happen in 2011 versus something happening in 2030. So you're right that things probably similar things would have likely happened eventually, but they would have happened in very different ways at very different times. Yeah, okay, but but I mean, th I don't think it's fair to say, Demir, you believe in nothing. You just say like, so what? <laughs> but I, I mean, but but really, what what's so what on that? Like, it happened in your lifetime, not as a young man, as opposed to you being an old man. That's pretty contingent. Like, that's just your frame. yeah. It's like, contingent, but it also affects people's lives in the interim period. The so that's like 19 years where things change. And so, so you're keen on preserving social media to be able to trigger this in places, I guess. And even if it, if even if the trigger, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, doesn't. But what's the issue? But if if things, if if social media doesn't matter all that much, then why do you care so much about? anonymous trolls and, and are there really a lot of people like that still on twitter i don't really see the eggs all that much anymore oh, and I you mean, can easily use your settings to filter out anyone without a profile photo yeah no i mean i i, I think i've i've enabled that i still get like a, a you know yeah. especially around ukraine like a bunch of weird people but anyway, oh yeah or, or do but you again. mean people who have profile photos but they just don't have their real names and there's no way of knowing who exactly they are yeah and they clearly have like one or two followers and they've just like you know potentially i don't know who i don't know yeah but I, what about I, okay here's another point, example here's, here's what, the thing mm. i i you know i don't have like a very even in the essay i wrote in 2017 i don't even have that strong of a sense of this it was uh, the even the essay back then was if you're it's it's that if you're worried about uh, you know, the role of uh, social media in politics. And, you know, writing in 2017, I think I took, uh, I took those as givens that we're all worried about it. And so, you know, you got to choose whether you get to have like uh, a functional democracy, perfect anonymity on the internet. And I forget what my third stool was, but, but that you'd have to choose in some way, like how to modulate anonymity on it. Um, I guess now the way I think about it is that I, I, whichever way that plays out, I don't, I don't really care. I think it's, it's, it's in my tweet, it was funny to me that 
that there was all this sort of worry about Elon Musk because Twitter is so fundamental to our democracy. And I wanted to extend that argument that I don't think Twitter is that fundamental to our democracy in the same sense that I don't go on Facebook and I still think I can vote. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not like, just, I'm sure information gets disseminated through Facebook. It doesn't affect me at all. Uh, so information clearly comes to me through Twitter, but you know, if I didn't do Twitter, it'd be something else and it's, it's fine basically. So I, 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 uh, I guess my, my, my argument is just to, to, to deflate the whole thing, to deflate the stakes in a big way uh, across the board on, on this question. Um, and if, if t because, and the reason I tweeted is because Elon Musk said he wanted to you know, bring accountability and uh, remove anonymity on Twitter, and a lot of people jumped on him on that. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see him try. I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. And I, 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 and I, I, I want to deflate people's expectations especially people who are, you know, democracy activists, like we need this to fight for the right in the rest of the world. Like, eh, maybe you do. I don't think you do. Uh, you know, what about people who work in kind of official jobs that are sensitive or they're not supposed to have strong opinions, but they still want to be part of the quote unquote public debate? I mean, I, I know a number of people who um, it's not clear exactly who they are, but I might know who they are. And they're able to actually say what they think without fear of blowback. How do we do this before freaking social media? Like, I mean, here's, I guess here's a parallel on that. They would just talk question. to their friends. They'll talk to their friends in real life. Or they'd write articles and, and then, you know, pass them through some gatekeeper, uh, a magazine. The magazine would decide whether to grant anonymity or not, basically. Now we have this idea of the public sphere. But the, the interesting distorting factor here, of course, is that, you know, uh, what what Twitter does is it creates this illusion. I think it's an illusion of an actual public sphere. But if you had a, a you know a public commons um, before, you'd have to walk out on it to like yell to a crowd and, and to be like a you know a demagogue or an inspiring politician, however you want to put it, to get people motivated. And your face would be there, and you'd you'd own that sort of speech. Now we had uh, anonymous pamphleteering. Twitter has nothing to do with anonymous pamphleteering. People are like, oh, how can we do the Federalist Papers and Publius? Guess what? You know how easy it is to fucking set up a website and actually uh, pay $2 to not have uh, the IP address associated with your account? Yeah, you're still trusting some company out, like Amazon, basically, you're, you're trusting or some... Now, you might say, oh, that's too technical for, for like any normal person to do. Pay a nerd like like five bucks to do it for you. The internet is still fundamentally. But how would they promote it though? Because let's say they start their own website, and they have to promote it on Twitter. I mean, this is the problem. How did no how matter, did how did how did how did things happen before? Ultimately, it's word of mouth. So yeah, you have to get it to so, some sort of people. Presumably, you know, uh, these frustrated people are talking to you. You know, people who are you know, uh, scared for their jobs and, and refuse to do it. So they hide anonymously one way or the other. Well, they could reach out to you and say, hey, I wrote this pamphlet on this website. L could you link, could you read it, Shadi, and maybe like promote it? And then you can choose to promote it one way or yeah, the other. Yeah, but that's a, that's quite a bit more challenging and that reintroduces the problem of the gatekeeper. Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, part of what, you know, part of our criticism of some of the disinformation discourse is that it elevates certain gatekeepers who make decisions about what's good and what's bad. So if we're saying that someone has to find a magazine or a website to publish them, and then they go through a, a different gatekeeping process, 
you know, we're, we're well, sort of recreating the problem. No, I, well, hold on first. I, so did, did we, so the advent of the internet actually liberated us, you think? Like we, there, the problem <laughs> existed before. See, I don't believe it did. That's the point. And so, and, and to your point, I, uh, you know, people then say that Twitter is like pamphleteering. I don't think that's right. Because you can still, you don't need to find a website or a publication to publish you. You can do that. You'll, that's an easier way to get to an audience. But you literally can set up an anonymous web page anywhere. And then, you know, uh, send it to trusted sources. This is how, ag- how organizing used to happen, in fact, is you'd actually have to do a little bit more than fucking walk out onto, onto yeah, some social media platform though. and run your mouth. Yeah, okay. So it's a little harder. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's what I don't like about lionizing social media as liberating, on the one hand, um, is that, is that uh, I, I really do think it cuts both ways, you know? Like, it, it's, and it's probably neutral, maybe just a little bit more destabilizing on all sides is what it is, one way or the other, you know? Like, it gets you, it, it, it gets you uh, a premature revolution, and I, it is premature in Egypt because it didn't work. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Or... Or it gets you Donald Trump. And like, meh, okay, whatever. Sorry, Demir, I don't know what you mean by a premature revolution. This guy did not have the chops to set up like social change. Premature on his part. Now, the, the, like I said, uh, the Muslim brothers were more ready and then they got crushed. Okay, but so premature in that sense too. They were not able to hold on to power. They were crushed by the military, right? Um, that that too is that, that too is how politics and power works. Like if you don't succeed in holding power, you're not ready to hold power. You were fucking killed, basically, right? But then you're almost blaming the victim there Man, instead what? of saying that sometimes repression. No, no, no. I mean, but it, it's to say that people weren't ready to govern and they messed up, be, and then we know that because they were overthrown or that the revolution failed. I mean, there's another explanation, which is repression can work. And sometimes even if you even if you are somewhat ready or, um, you know, you don't even have to govern well, you could just like govern badly and not have and not have and not be overthrown. I mean, the, the idea that you have to be completely coherent and united and you have to know what you're doing and that's the only way a revolution can succeed is unrealistic because revolutionaries by definition don't exactly know what they're doing. Um, it's only when you have the the force of arms where you have tanks and weapons and armies where you can destroy those revolutions. So ultimately, it's not because it was premature, it's because the people they were facing had all the firepower. Right. I mean, the the first task of any revolutionary is to co-opt the military one way or the other and then do purges there and put your people <laughs> in place, obviously. I mean, what is this? And this is this is where I think like the role of ideas is grossly misplaced. It's not about like governing well. Heaven forfend, that's not what it's about. It's about making sure you control power. And then you can then you can build a democracy on top of that. But like you got you gotta take control of the state. They failed. And so that's what I mean by premature. They failed to penetrate, purge, and take control over the military. I mean, again, this is, this is again, 30,000 feet. I don't know the details of it and what the machinations were, what the chances for that were. Were they thinking about it? Were there, were there any smart people in there doing it? What were the causes of the failure? How did that not work out? I'm sure there were smart people among the Brotherhood who were less ideas-based and much more cognizant of how power actually works 
than you're letting on to here. But yeah, yeah, sure. And so they failed. And so, I mean, premature in that sense is that their movement was not ready for the moment because they were unable to conquer the military, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Although I will note, it is very hard to overthrow a government. Very hard. Revolutions Or to fail. change a regime yeah. or to actually launch a successful revolution. Um, I guess that's obvious to say, but I, I think... I think especially, um, you know, especially with the modern state and and all the, all the um, uh, coercive resources it has, it's even harder now than it might have been in, in previous eras um, where the state hadn't been as dominant. But I'm just, you know, when we talk about revolutions, they're very hard to do. Totally. Even in the best of circumstances. And that's why they usually don't happen. Yeah, totally, totally. Um which again, though, you know, again, gets us to the whole question of the redemptive power of social media or the, the you know, uh, the unredemptive power of social media. I don't know. Um, guess, I, yeah, I, 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 I don't have, this is what I was saying at the beginning. I don't have like very well-formed sort of ideas of where all of this is going, but it does feel... Um, I, it does feel somewhat overwrought that that in the sense that like if elon musk really transforms twitter one way or the other it, it won't really matter like it it won't enhance or minimize the chances of trump coming to power for example i think to be very concrete about it um or either yeah either way america like if america is going to be bad in the next few years it's going to be bad with or without elon musk owning twitter yeah, yeah. it might Things like that might change it around the margins, but it doesn't change the fundamental analysis of where we are as a country. So that I definitely agree with. Though, so we're in for, or, or no? No, no. I mean, I, I agree with that, uh, though I guess maybe it contradicts a little bit with you saying that there's a huge difference between something happening in 2011 or 2030. So, I mean, you know, uh, I guess I guess Trump <laughs> no, could no. happen next year or, you know. Some no, look. I'm saying it'll be bad in 2024 regardless. So I'm not saying there are different time periods yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying 2024 versus 2030. No, no, I'm just saying that the uh, the that social media may have an impact, right? I mean, the, the argument against the sort of uh, social media scolds is that if we don't control it, um, you, you will get Trump. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I, I think I think we, we've we've come to a point where where I, I certainly don't know what the hell I, I think. I don't know you. Yeah, no, this is actually good because I feel I feel a little bit torn on certain things and I'm going to have to and maybe this is of course the point of a podcast is that we talk these things through and then we ponder. Yeah. And then to be continued. Yeah, I guess so. All right, Chadi, always good talking okay. to you. Bye. Bye, Demir. Mm -hmm.